getting that just right temperature or getting an energy efficient appliance. It's not only about making smart changes today. It's about creating brighter tomorrows with simple steps to save energy. Plus, you'll help protect the environment for years to come. A better world for you, your family, and your community. Get started with rebates and discover what energy efficient choices can help you power what's next at AlliantEnergy.com/rebates. Not long ago, everyone knew that you're either born a boy or girl. Not anymore. The Biden administration is pushing radical gender experiments on children, changing their names, clothes, identities, and bodies. Joe Biden and his left-wing allies pushed boys to take estrogen to appear more feminine. They pushed girls to take testosterone so they grow facial hair. Biden and progressive leaders promote puberty blockers to keep kids from developing to normal men and women. These drugs can leave you sterile, infertile, impotent. Joe Biden and the new left even promote surgery on teens and young adults, removing breasts and genitals. They want boys in our daughters' bathrooms and sports teams. And now, the Biden administration is planning to issue new rules that would force doctors to prescribe dangerous drugs and worse. Tell Joe Biden and left-wing leaders across America, hands off our kids. Paid for by America First Legal. You're listening to the Huddle Up Podcast with Chad Jensen and Zach Kelberman. Join Broncos Country's deep divers at milehighhuddle.com and sound off. And now it's time to drop some knowledge. Welcome in, everybody, to the Huddle Up Podcast presented, as always, by Mile High Huddle and 24-7 Sports, powered by Overtime Media. I'm your host, Chad Jensen, with me, as always, is my partner in crime, and you know him and love him, is your Denver Broncos reporter for 24-7 Sports. He is Zach Kelberman. Zach, we're coming off a long weekend for a lot of people. It was a four-day weekend celebrating the 4th of July. How was your weekend, my brother? You know, we talked about it off air chat, but it was kind of rainy here for me, a a little cloudy. The weather wasn't very conducive to going out and having a good time, 4th of July, but um, I do like the holiday, though. I'm a big, you know, patriotic guy. I like eating the food, and it was, you know, it was nice to kick back. So, how was yours? I know you went away uh, this yeah, I weekend. The, I was up in the Rocky Mountains, kicking around on a on a lake, having some t- good time away with nice. family and all that. It was fun. But we did have one interesting piece of breaking news that came out over the weekend, which is, according to Mike Kliss, the Broncos, of course, and this is no surprise, they're not going to start Joe Flacco at the Hall of Fame game. Shocker. But who they are going to start is not Drew Locke, but rather Kevin Hogan. What were your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I thought that Flacco might at least – I know they have five games, but I thought Flacco would at least get maybe just a series just for Vic Fangio to kind of debut all the players. But I fully understand why he's holding him back and kind of going on the traditional schedule with four other games remaining. Um, But, yeah, if Hogan, the experience factor, Chad, it's the only reason right now that it's not Drew Locke taking that over. And in the article I wrote – that when that time comes, when he progresses and when his brain catches up to his arm, the Broncos will have no problem putting him in there behind Flacco as a number two and beyond that, hopefully. But not a second sooner, not until then. And Kevin Hogan is that guy. He's the only experienced guy on the roster behind Flacco, and he's going to get first crack at the number two job. Yeah, I think it's more, honestly, I mean, you're you're exactly right. But I think this is really more about decorum. It's a 
rookie head coach and Vic Fangio saying, look, I'm going to be deferential to the veterans. And in this case, the second most experienced quarterback on the roster is Kevin Hogan, even though it's not by leaps and bounds. We've talked about this before on the podcast. He's appeared in four or five games, started one in his this going into his fourth year. And that one single start came in 2017 on that infamous 0-16 Browns team. And, yeah. you know, I think he's got – I just did an article on this over the weekend. He's got like a four to five touchdown to interception ratio throughout his career. But, you know, the thing that's interesting about Kevin Hogan is we, we talk some smack on him. Sometimes we – dismiss him you know in terms of really factoring into the quarterback situation in Denver but this is a guy who was extremely productive in college now he was never a stunning quarterback in terms of his tools and traits like Drew Locke with that arm and athleticism and all that he never brought that to the table he was a quintessential game manager but in the best sense of the word in 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 that he walked away from the Stanford Cardinal as the all-time leader in total yards. He has the most career wins as a quarterback. I mean, that's saying something. When you've got guys like Andrew Luck, John Elway, hailing from Stanford, he's got him beat in most of the major categories for quarterbacks at Stanford, which is what drew him. One of the major things that drew NFL teams to Kevin Hogan coming out of that 2016 draft was his production we heard rich gangarella for example when asked what he liked about Locke, what he liked about rip and he talked about how they were four-year starters and that that body of work you know allowed him to better evaluate the player and project what they can expect at the next level similar thing for kevin hogan what also helped his case and here's where it gets interesting zach is the fact that he played in a pro style system at stanford under center huddling up west coast offense i mean basically stanford ran west coast ever since bill walsh who the progenitor of the of the West Coast offense was at Stanford in the late 70s before he began his his San Francisco reign. And so that's always helped Stanford quarterbacks at the next level. They can operate a pro-style system. But the problem is he's never been able to, with all four of his NFL opportunities, prove that he's anything more than maybe a mid-level backup quarterback. And this is where it gets interesting, though. Scangarello is a guy who we saw with Nick Mullins. I mean, when he came out as an undrafted rookie in 2017, no one viewed him as anything more than maybe a mid-level backup at best in the NFL. And that's if every all the stars aligned, all the freaking right. dominoes fell, mid-level backup. Well, teamed up with Rich Scangarello and developed over about a year and a half of real time, turns out he's he brings a lot to the table. So you, I do wonder, and as I wrote an article about this over the weekend, I do wonder how much the Scangarello effect might help a on-the-surface limited quarterback in Kevin Hogan. Yeah, you never really know, and, and maybe he would really take the Scangarello system. And uh, going on with Vic Fangio said last month that uh, Hogan was much improved from what he last saw a couple years ago. Maybe they have something in him. They can always use a high-end backup, and, and Rippin is no sure thing in that role. A lot of Broncos fans think these guys are just going to be, oh, Locke's the future and Rippin's the future backup, and they have to develop, and they can be bust too. And if Hogan pans out, you got to keep that guy. So he's going to get the, the preferential treatment for now. It's going to be uh, slanted slightly in his favor, but it's not going to be for long, I don't think, until at least Locke just catches up. Um, I, one thing I think Fangio is smart is not exposing Locke to the first string defense of the Falcons in this game and kind of just ruining his mental progression. You you want to kind of coddle him for now. Hold his hand through the preseason. He's still going to get a ton of action in the second half, hopefully along with Rippon, and you're still going to see what he can do, but it's going to be a more of 
of a balanced playing field and not playing against first stringers. So I'm all for this decision. I like uh, obviously what they have in lock. I like the fact that they're not risking Flacco to injury and they're giving Hogan a chance because like you said, Chad, we've written this guy off over and over, but maybe he's taken to the system more than the others. Maybe he's really shown something that we haven't seen um, outside of the facility. Yeah. I'm really interested. I mean, I wrote that article. Basically, I'm just going through, I've through the summer, I've gone through a series of players and broken it down in depth, kind of deep dive version of the bubble players, you know, the veterans who were on the roster bubble heading into this training camp and, you know, the pendulum swung around to finally be covering Kevin Hogan's situation. And going through that, I realized that we might be discounting him a little too early. Even though still right yeah. now, if you back me into a corner, I'm sure you agree, my guess is that he's the of, – of the four quarterbacks currently on the roster, he's the guy that probably ends up on the outside looking income roster cutdowns. But we can't uh, completely dismiss him because there was a reason – he was drafted. There was a reason he was so prolific in college. And another thing that's interesting, I almost forgot about this doing my research on, on Kevin Hogan. He was an Andy Reid draft pick. Andy Reid drafted him in the fifth round. So slash, not just Andy Reid, but uh, what's the guy's name now in Cleveland? I just had a brain fart. The GM. John Dorsey. 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 He was a Dorsey pick. Dorsey's been money in terms of drafting quarterbacks. Frickin' Patrick Mahomes, Baker Mayfield, setting him up, knocking him down in consecutive years. Yep. Both he and Reed were in on that draft that, that got Kevin Hogan. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out in terms of the competition. And Zach, we're only, shoot, we're recording this Sunday evening. We're 11 days from camp kicking off. Yeah, it's right around the corner, and we're finally going to get that battle underway. But one last thing on Hogan is the Broncos re-signed him to a contract in March. And if they just wanted a body, they could have really signed anyone. They knew what they were going to do. They knew that they were going to go get a veteran and probably draft a rookie. They could have brought in any placeholder quarterback, and they brought back Kevin Hogan for a new system for Scangarello. So uh, there is more, a little more credence, a little more to read into this than, than people think. And I think he'll give a good shot, but uh, we've definitely discounted him, Chad, for sure. And I, we're, he's going to prove his uh, get a, a big chance to prove his worth in the first game. The rubber's going to meet the road here pretty right. soon. It's going to be fun to see. Now, today we got a few different topics we want to touch on. Aside from the Kevin Hogan bit, we want to talk about something Champ Bailey had to say. We're going to talk about this recent list that NFL.com put out of the best teams of the 2010s decade. We're going to get to that here in just a minute. First, though, make sure you're following the show on Twitter at Huddle Up Pod because that's the best way for you to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening with the show in real time. Most of you are, are subscribing, listening to this on, on the daily, and we appreciate that. But if you want to be involved when we put out calls for questions or requests, things like that, announcements, you want to make sure you're following the show. If you're on YouTube, continue liking, continue commenting. You're doing a great job there. If you like what you hear from the podcast on YouTube, We'd really appreciate it, too, if you share it out on social media. And if you're on iTunes, we, we'd love it if you give us a creative review, five-star rating if you like what you hear, and let us know what your thoughts are. Let us know how we're doing on the show. All right, Zach, let's... Not long ago, everyone knew that you're either born a boy or a girl. Not anymore. The Biden administration is pushing radical gender experiments on children, changing their names, clothes, identities, and bodies. Joe Biden and his left-wing allies pushed boys to take estrogen to appear more feminine. They pushed girls to take testosterone so they grow facial hair. Biden and progressive leaders promote puberty blockers to keep kids from developing to normal men and women. These drugs can leave you sterile, infertile, impotent. 
Joe Biden and the new left even promote surgery on teens and young adults, removing breasts and genitals. They want boys in our daughters' bathrooms and sports teams. And now, the Biden administration is planning to issue new rules that would force doctors to prescribe dangerous drugs and worse. Tell Joe Biden and left-wing leaders across America, hands off our kids. Paid for by America First Legal. Get to this article you had over the weekend that was quite interesting in which Champ Bailey, of course, going into the Hall of Fame this year, revealed the player that was his toughest matchup as a, as, as a cornerback in the NFL throughout his career, and he listed Marvin Harrison. He also kind of grafted Peyton Manning into why that, that particular matchup was so difficult, but you had the story and light our listeners here on that. Yeah, he, he was given, uh, in a recent interview, he was asked who his toughest ever on-field matchup was as a Hall of Fame cornerback, and he really couldn't name one guy. He, he faced so many, Chad, over the course of 15 years, but he came down to with the Colts and that dynamic duo, that uh, Hall, future Hall of Fame duo when Manning gets in, but yeah, Marvin Harrison, Peyton Manning, uh, that, you know, that prolific passing attack, and he faced him firsthand, and he knew based on the chemistry they had, the alchemy they shared on the field. Manning and Harrison. It was always the right place at the right time. Manning would throw the ball before Harrison's even in and out of his routes. I mean, you can't really stop that. As great as Bailey was, I think he even deferred to the greatness that we saw with the Colts there. So it's a great answer, and it's it's good insight into what one Hall of Fame player thinks about another. Anytime I think of Marvin Harrison, and you could probably remember these games too, Zach, even though it's, it was before your time in terms of covering the team, long before either of our times covering this team, but Myself as a fan growing up rooting for this team ever since the early 80s, I remember this vividly. And that was the 2003 and 2004 playoffs in which the Denver Broncos under Jake Plummer's leadership at quarterback went on the road in the wild card round to to take on Peyton Manning and the Indianapolis Colts. In both games, the Broncos got ridiculously blown out. And the first one, that's why Champ Bailey was brought to Denver because Mike Shanahan's Broncos were so brutalized in th- through the air by Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, and, and company. The next year, though, you know, Champ Bailey suited up, went against them in that, that second wild card round, and the, the Colts still had their way with the Denver Broncos. And I, I can still remember that the play, and you can see highlights of this on YouTube, in which Peyton Manning hits Marvin Harrison over the middle. I don't even think Champ was on him in this particular play, but he kind of had to – extend to, to get the ball and hits the ground, ca- caught the ball cleanly, but had to extend, so he's in the air. Everyone on the Broncos' defense thought he was down. No one touched him. It was pretty sad. He just stood up, ran t- for a touchdown, and uh, there was nothing the Broncos could do about it. But I do think about some of those battles that, that Champ Bailey had with Marvin Harrison. I'd like to think he pretty much held his own when he had to match up against those two guys. Yeah, I mean, he he had his, his fair share of battles, and sometimes he won, and sometimes Harrison won. But looking back on it and watching film now, it's it's it it, it brings goosebumps to watch two Hall of Fame players line up across from each other. Then when you factor in Peyton Manning at quarterback, uh, like I wrote in the article, some of these receivers were great on their own, but they came packaged with all pro or Hall of Fame quarterbacks like Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, who he faced for uh, most of the decade. It's it's hard to go against for a corner. It's not an easy position to play. They don't get a lot of love compared to other positions. Uh, But Bailey was one of the best, Chad, uh, covering the Broncos or not, one of the best I've ever seen in person, uh, uh, you know, on TV. One of the best corners of my generation for sure and others. It is interesting to hear him, you know, put Peyton Manning into that equation when asked about the matchup because it goes to show what a truly elite quarterback, how they can create receivers. 
I mean, if you look, for example, at the 2011 Broncos under Tim Tebow, you had two young wideouts in Demarius Thomas and Eric Decker who were one year removed from, from being rookie draft picks. And, you know, they were solid. They made plays when Tim Tebow needed them to. But because of who the quarterback was, neither one of those guys were about to put out any kind of prolific production. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. They'd score here. They'd have a few catches here and there and some yards. And, of course, DT had that huge game in the playoffs against Pittsburgh. But once Peyton Manning arrived, both of those guys became Pro Bowl caliber. I can't recall now off the top of my head if Decker ever made a Pro Bowl in a Broncos uniform. But I know he had consecutive 1,000-yard seasons with Peyton Manning throwing him the ball. And we all know what became of Demarius Thomas. I mean, he was... At least while Peyton Manning was in town, he was a perennial pro bowler. And then even after Peyton Manning, who helped a guy like DT develop and and get to that next level as a receiver, he helped guys like Trevor Simeon, well, let's just focus on Trevor Simeon, produce when the onus finally fell on them. I mean, DT still had a 1,000-yard season in 2016, and that was with... Trevor Simeon throwing him the ball for 14 games, Paxton Lynch throwing it for two games, and then the next year, were it not for... You know, just some really, really bad offensive football. DT would have gone over a thousand again. And look what Peyton even did for Julius Thomas and turned into a star. And then when he got to Jacksonville, he was a bust. I mean, that's just the the beauty of having uh, once in a generation, once in a lifetime quarterback like Peyton at your at your controls. And uh, the Broncos experienced that firsthand and led them to some pretty good things, Chad. Yeah, I'm just looking at this real quick because I I doubted myself. Indeed, Demarius Thomas caught 90 balls in 2016 for 1,083 yards. And then in 2017, came just shot. He caught 83 passes, but because it was Trevor Simeon throwing the rock and Mike McCoy slash Bill Musgrave coordinating that offense through the entire season, 949 yards. But still, I mean, you look at that production he had from 2012 through 2016. Now, of course, only four of those years were under Peyton. He's at 90. I think now that I, I, I'm thinking about it, he has a record up there with Torrey Holt as one of like two players ever to post five consecutive seasons of 90 or more receptions and 1,000 yards receiving. He went from 2012 through 2015, or, yeah, 2012 through 2016, 90 plus 1,000. I mean, that's insane. It is, and it speaks to the level of player that DT is also, and it's 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 shame he's no longer with the Broncos, and it's a shame that you know he had to move on last year. But what he and Peyton did together was one of the best duos of this decade for sure. Do you think he'll merit Hall of Fame consideration when his time finally comes? Mm, I don't think so. I, I think he's the Hall of the very good, but maybe not the Hall of Fame. He's close, but I don't yeah. think he's there. For what it's worth, you know, regular season stats, which is what they measure in terms of canon for for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. DT is still just under 10,000 for his career, mainly because these last two years have just been uh, subpar. I mean, I shouldn't say subpar because 2017, again, he came just shy of 1,000 yards. But last year, gets traded halfway through the year, and then he suffers that Achilles injury. And that combined with the fact that his first two years in the league, 2010, he only had 283 yards because he was hurt for most of that season. And then 2011 under Tim Tebow, they activated him pretty much that first game that Tebow was the the quarterback that year on the road against Miami. That was pretty much the first game that I can recall off the top of my head that DT was healthy and able to play that year. So he only finished with 551 yards. Those two seasons combined with last year's injury slash trade riddled season, I think is why he's not up there in the 11,000s right now for a guy who's been playing in the league since 2010. 
I mean, if he had Peyton Manning his whole career, like, you know, Harrison did for the most part, oh, yeah, he yeah. would be a Hall of Famer easily. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just come down to bad quarterbacking and bad timing. And it ended poorly for Demarius. And he had that car accident after the season. So, uh, you know, we, we both do wish him well. Let's also talk today about <clears throat> this uh, NFL.com list that came out over the holiday weekend as well, listing the 10 top 10 teams of the, the decade, basically. And there were some uh, Broncos fans very upset with this list. Even though a Broncos squad made this 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 list, the Broncos squad did not. So let's go through this real quick, and we'll just kind of vibe off of this. First and foremost, let's just roll through it. Number one, they have the 2013 Seahawks as the best team of the decade. Now, on the surface, do you think that considering all the different teams that factor into this equation, do you think the Seahawks, that team that demolished Peyton Manning in the – and the Broncos in the Super Bowl 48, do you think they deserve to be that number one team of the decade? I think you can make the case for it. I'm not, I don't hate that too much. They had one of the best secondaries I've ever seen. They had one of the best defenses and they had a pretty, pretty good quarterback. So um, altogether, I don't think it's anything that's a super hot take. You can poke holes through it too. You can find an argument against it, but I'm not uh, too mad about that. Okay. Here's the thing. I want to I want to talk about what really irritates me. Two things that really bother me on this list. First, though, let's just take a quick break. We'll be right back, and then I'll, we'll dive into this thing. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. All right, so here's what bothers me. A, it's the Seahawks, number one, at 2013. That's all fine and well, but you don't have the 2015 Broncos on this list, the world champion right. Broncos. Yeah. Here's why that's a problem. They're almost identical teams. If you look at the 2013 Seahawks, they were a team – led by an elite defense, an all-time caliber defense, and a so-so offense. Yeah, you had a prolific running back, but Russell Wilson was only in his second year. They weren't putting up huge numbers. He was just really good in the clutch. Compared to the 2015 Broncos, again, an all-time defense that led the way to a championship, and a so-so offense that basically was survived by the running game and a quarterback who found a way to make plays in the clutch, Peyton Manning. So how could you put the Seahawks at number one and not at least have the 2015 Broncos somewhere on this list? They're not listed here. And what adds insult to injury, Zach, is the team the Broncos lambasted pretty much, demolished. They're, they're listing the 2015 Panthers at number two because of Cam Newton's season. I get that. He had a phenomenal season in 2015. They're listing him here number two inexplicably. No mention of the Broncos. And the Broncos just smothered that offense in the Super Bowl. Yeah, you, you nailed it with that. I, I don't understand how the 2015 Broncos are there. As good as the 2013 squad was and the offense was, uh, they had, didn't have a, a, a happy ending there. And the 2015 squad, like you mentioned, Chad, they had an all-time great historic defense, one of the best ever, and they still had Peyton Manning there. So just on the name recognition alone on that team, they should have warranted to be on this list, let alone somewhere in the top five. I mean, then you can argue all the Cinderella things that happened, the Brock Osweiler starts. That was a magical season and a magical team. And to have a team on there uh, that didn't even win the Super Bowl, the 2013 Broncos, uh, I don't know about that. That's where, to me, I agree with you, that's where the, 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 the ire comes in here. Yeah, they've got several teams on here who didn't even win the Super Bowl, including 2015 Panthers at number two, the 2013 Broncos at, at number five, the 2015 Cardinals the 2015 Cardinals, they didn't even get I, – I guess they did get to the title game, the NFC title game. The 2015 Cardinals are number six. Now, they have the 2012 Niners at number seven who lost the Super Bowl that year to the Joe Flacco and the Ravens. And then the 2011 Packers, not the 2010 Packers. 2010 Packers won it all. 
with Aaron Rodgers. The next year, they were defending their title, had a very good regular season, went 14-2, and two, and then got bounced from the playoffs, lickety-split. Did not win the Super Bowl. 2018 Chiefs, as we know, did Jeez. not win the Super Bowl, listed at number nine. And then they freaking have the gall to list the 2017 Jaguars at number <laughs> 10, the team quarterbacked by Blake Bortles. <laughs> uh, and no mention of the 2015 Broncos here. That's, that's an insult. Three of the ten teams won titles on this list. I mean, he's just looking at stats or looking at, at flashy seasons. That's not a way to form the best list here. So it's it's much like that Adam Rank thing, and they're both now the same company, and you can kind of deduce what you want from that. It's not much to pay attention to. It's one man's opinion. I don't think much of this list, Chad. I know you don't either. Um, but to not have the 2015 team on there, one of the biggest upsets in Super Bowl history, I, I just don't know about that. You know what's funny, too, is – they list the 2013 Broncos, and they should be on this this list at some point. Like, I'm not going to pick bones with them being number five because they didn't win at all. But they did set the all-time record, and it still stands in points scored with 606. Peyton Manning had that 55-touchdown MVP season. Phenomenal. Set the all-time record single season in touchdowns and yards. Phenomenal season. But honestly, the snubbing of the 2015 Broncos, is it sticks out. But the irony is the best Broncos team of the decade – didn't make the Super Bowl. That was the 2012 Broncos. That team was so good. And were it not for just some lucky twists of fate that, that favored the, the Baltimore Ravens and really just some poor coaching decisions by John Fox, no one else could have beat the Broncos that year. That was the luckiest, just, as I say, turn of the wheel, twist of fate. I mean, here's the thing, Zach. You might not remember this, but that play that everyone hates, you know, Joe Flacco goes deep. And Raheem Moore, just over his outstretched hand, you know, he should have been the last man of defense, and goes over his hands, Jacoby Jones waltzes in. There was half a minute still left on the clock after that in the fourth quarter, and the Broncos had two timeouts, and Peyton Manning, who was on an 11-game winning streak at quarterback. John Fox decided to kneel on the ball and go to overtime instead of trying to get into field goal range. And his, his excuse after the game, after they lost and were upset, was, well, you know, after that shocking touchdown late, yeah, we had just under, just over half a minute in two timeouts, but the team was shell-shocked. I didn't want anything worse to happen to us and lose it in the fourth quarter. I wanted to bring everyone to the sideline, you know, regather ourselves, reset, and then just take it again in in, uh, overtime. But the problem was, once you allow that to happen, you leave it up to the fates once again to a coin flip, and the the, the Ravens were able to close the deal. That game, yes, there were some foibles. There were some faux pas on the part of the Broncos players that cost them at the end of that game. But John Fox not allowing arguably the greatest quarterback of all time to try and move the ball with half a minute <laughs> and two time. I mean, do you think Belichick would have sat Tom Brady in that situation? Hell no. Good old John Fox, man. He was the original Vance Joseph. I, one thing I do, I do want to say about this list, the last thing, though, and this is my hot take. If that first snap in the the 2013 Seahawks, if the first snap in that Super Bowl, if it doesn't go uh, through Peyton Manning, if it doesn't result in a safety, yeah. I think that game goes a lot differently. I mean, what I remember from that is that they never recovered, yep. and they had a really good offense that year. So um, we don't know. It's always that what if. It, it didn't happen that way. They were a good team, the 2013 Seahawks. But it's one thing to have them there, like you said, Chad, but to not have the 2015 Broncos, yep. I don't know about that go. The other thing, too, about that game, Super Bowl Forty Eight was the fact that it was the only Super Bowl in the modern era to not be played in warm weather or dome climate. 
And it just so happened to, of course, be quarterbacked by a player in Peyton Manning who could barely, you know, he barely had feeling in his right arm. So when it was cold like that, and you could see it even in that 2012 Ravens game we were just talking about, which was bitterly cold, bitter cold. You could see that the, the, the temperatures and the weather in that Super Bowl 48, it affected Peyton Manning's arm. Yeah. But I do agree with you. I do agree with you that had that not flying, flown over Peyton Manning's head on the opening snap and completely changed the energy of that game and shell-shocked the Broncos the way it did, all bets are off. Yeah. I mean, I, I was betting on the Broncos to win that game, and I just it, it just they never recovered from it. And that falls on them, too, and that falls on the coaching. How do you let a safety in the Super Bowl rattle, rattle you that badly? But if they could have just recovered, I think that game would have gone a lot differently. Yeah. Well, anyway, this list, I mean, it was making the rounds on Twitter over the weekend and a lot of a lot of hand-wringing on the part of the Broncos, but Broncos country, I should say. But Zach had the best advice for those of you listening, and that is you can't pay much attention to this arbitrary list. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes almost zero sense. I can understand if you're not going to list some – or let's put it this way. I can understand if you're going to list one or two teams who didn't win at all, but this should be a, a list – dominated by world champions not i mean the broncos honestly of all the teams listed here who didn't win the super bowl of that decade the broncos of 2013 are probably the only team in a technical sense that should have made this list let me just say if you put teams that made sense on here if this list made sense it would be getting no traction but right now 259 retweets and 1084 likes countless quote tweets i think brant did his job i mean that's that's what he's doing and that he did his Mission accomplished for him. It's just to rile up people right now in a dead period. It's subjective. It's one man's opinion. And uh, you got to take it with a giant industrial-sized grain of salt. <laughs> I mean, the Cardinals, again, the Cardinals, the 2011 Packers, 2018 Chiefs, Jaguars. Troll, troll, troll. None of those teams even made the Super Bowl. At least the 2015 Panthers made the Super Bowl. At least the 2013 Broncos made the Super Bowl. So, anyway, that'll do it, though, for today's episode of the Huddle Up Podcast. We will be back tomorrow with an episode deep diving on the Kansas City Chiefs, the 2019 Chiefs, what's changed, what's going on. We're going to have a guest by the name of Seth Kaiser. Most of you can probably remember him from last summer we had him on. It's about knowing your enemy. We're going to dive into the Chiefs from an expert, a guy who covers the team, and uh, find out what the Broncos are, are going to be facing twice in this coming season. So stay tuned for that in the meantime. Make sure you are following the show on Twitter at HuddleUpPod. You can find my partner, Zach Kelberman, on Twitter at Kelberman247. Myself, at Chad and Jensen. Leave your likes, comments on YouTube, and we appreciate it. You'll leave us a creative review on iTunes. For Zach Kelberman, I'm Chad Jensen. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Huddle Up Podcast. Join Broncos Country's deep divers at milehighhuddle.com to keep the conversation going.